When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to episode 60 of Podcast Royal, where we've got a juicy interview about Prince William at 40. We break down the Invictus Games and celebrate Easter with the royal family. Plus, one of the Wessex's tour stops gets abruptly canceled. Her Majesty and Prince Louis have birthdays, and Harry and Meghan make a surprise visit to the Queen. So much to talk about right here in episode 60. It is our Diamond Jubilee episode. I've been waiting to say that for like three (laughs) episodes. How are you? And welcome back from vacation. I know you're going to tell us all about it, but I want to shamelessly say that I am going on the exact same vacation as you next week. I totally copied you and I want to hear how your trip was. Well, it was really, really great. So for listeners who don't know, I just got back from an amazing vacation in the Dominican Republic. Um, The beaches are so gorgeous there. The weather was perfect. Uh, There was a mix of people just visiting from all around the world. And it was nice to take a little break from my normal schedule. It was super relaxing and and fun. So um, I'm so glad you got to do that. And I got to tell you, I can't wait to go on Monday. We're recording as we always are on Tuesday. So I'm six days away from my own Dominican Republic vacation and I I can't wait. Yeah. It, you know, it's always nice to get away and it always feels like it goes by too quickly for sure. Um, Welcome home. Thank you so much. And And I have to throw this in here too. Tomorrow night, we're going to a concert together. So we're just tearing it up internationally albeit separately internationally and we're going to a concert together tomorrow and we're recording we're making it all work yes we are um so this week i am just really into the platinum jubilee plans that are underway so i talked to my grandmother last weekend and she actually told me that her hometown in england is planning a big jubilee lunch for this summer so it'll be in june and they're gonna block the streets off so everyone can get together and enjoy some yummy food As a reminder to our listeners, the Big Jubilee Lunch is an initiative by the Eden Project to really encourage people around the UK to take time, I think it's June 2nd through 5th, to celebrate the Platinum Jubilee by having a bash in the street or, you know, even just a cup of tea with a neighbor. And and the idea is really to encourage everyone just to gather together to recognize Her Majesty's celebration. So the mission of the Eden Project, according to their website, is to bring people together and encourage them to actively engage with one another in the uh, the places that they live. And they have a vision of a world full of happier and healthier communities where people know one another and neighborhoods thrive. So um, just really exciting. I wish I could be there for that, for that. I love that so much. That's, that's going to be here. We were just talking and this concert that we're going to tomorrow has snuck up on us. It's the end of April and the beginning of June is in a month. That's, that's crazy. So it's going to be here before we know it. 
Yeah, it, it really is. Uh, really bummed I can't make that. Well, we'll get there soon. I'm going in the first week of July, so I'll be a little bit belated, but hopefully the spirit will still be high from, from the Jubilee a couple weeks prior. So as for what I'm into this week, I really enjoyed hearing William on Kate Blanchett's podcast, Climate of Change. Actually, in a late add to this, I just this afternoon listened to Harry on Reed Hoffman's Masters of Scale. He's talking about better up and and mental health. Uh, and so I enjoyed hearing both of them. Um, William talked about his passion of protecting the environment. He gave credit to Philip, his grandfather, of course, and his dad, Charles, for inspiring this love of the environment in him. And it was fun to learn that after eight days of tropical temperatures in the Caribbean, William, Kate, and their kids headed off to France for a ski trip. So there's nothing like good family time to recharge. Of course, um, the Cambridges are getting flack because everybody's always getting flack for missing Harry and Meghan's uh, surprise drop in to the UK a couple on the, April 14th. So that was almost two weeks ago. And but you know what? I don't think that it was a, a, a snub. I think they just were on vacation and it just didn't work out and they'll see each other the next time around. But we'll talk about that in a second. So that is what I'm into this week. So you want to move into segment one, your fashion pick of the week? Yes, definitely. And and I know we'll head on this later too, but I'll go ahead and bring it up. So my fashion pick this week is Kate's lovely blue Easter coat dress and really the whole Cambridge family's Easter attire. So the coat dress is one of Kate's, you know, classic signature looks, and I am totally here for it. I really hope that the coat dress doesn't go away. I loved her Easter look for a couple of reasons. I really like the classy princess vibes I get from a lot of the dresses that she wears. And I also loved the fact that Kate and I were color twins this Easter. So I too wore a light blue Easter dress, although mine was not a coat dress. Um, I don't know. It feels to me like the the coat dress style that she wears is really hard to find in a normal person's budget. I mean, I really don't know where you would get something like that. You know, I I feel like you just don't see them, you know, out in in stores. um, It's a princess budget dress style for sure. And if I could get my hands on one, I would totally embrace the style. But um, anyway, the whole family was you know, in this kind of blue color, William and George had on their navy blue suits and um, Kate's uh, dress, I believe it was Amelia Wickstead, um, and and the, the gorgeous fascinator that she mm-hmm. had and sweet little Charlotte's floral dress. We'll talk about all that later, but that was my pick this week. Well, okay. I, that's a great pick. That is, that is uh, probably my pick too, but I want to have, I have two points about fashion. Number one is that, did you notice that Charlotte's outfit for Easter was almost identical to what she wore to meet her younger brother, Prince Louis at the Lindo wing back in 2018? Like if you look at the side by side, it's basically the same. And then my second thought was, I also want to throw into the mix, because I don't think we're talking about this later. Today is Tuesday. Yesterday on Monday, Kate apparently made a surprise appearance. I didn't realize it was a surprise. I thought that she was usually expected at this. At Anzac Day, she wore that white. It was a rewear of Alexander McQueen, another coat dress, uh, white this time. She wore it to Charlotte's christening in 2015. And I believe she wore a 
um, yellow version of it to Harry and Meghan's wedding in 2018. And she wore another fascinator yesterday. And I thought she looked incredible yesterday and, and she blew me away as ever. She looked beautiful. I totally agree. Loved, loved that look, especially that fascinator was so pretty. I, I wish know. that was really, uh, you know, that's another style I wish we embraced more in the U.S. I mean, I suppose we could, but we'd just be looking like Jackie Kennedy tryhards, probably. Like, we would just be, we would just, like, look, I mean, we just, we could just, you and I could just say, well, we host the British royal family podcast. It's part of the gig, but. I feel like it's one of those things that you almost need someone to help you with. Like, I'm not sure I could style my hair around one on my own. Right. (laughs) It's it's next level, but definitely gorgeous. Yeah, that that fascinator from yesterday was I don't know what about it was different and that made it so striking, but it was beautiful. And I thought that she as ever just looked amazing. So fashion, we'll talk again about Easter in a little bit, but let's move into segment two, the Royal Rundown. And our topic one is, of course, the Invictus game. So it's been two weeks since we've had an episode. We kind of primed the pump for the Invictus Games. We said, we'll talk about it in our next episode, but we both at the time had no idea when we recorded our last episode on April 12th that two days later, Harry and Meghan were going to make a surprise visit to see the Queen at Windsor on April 14th. So prior to arriving in the Hague, Netherlands for the Invictus Games kickoff on April 15th, Harry and Meghan stopped off at Windsor to visit Her Majesty the day before. So you told me this over the phone. So I was driving to see my best friend's daughter play soccer in Tuscaloosa, which is about 45 minutes to an hour away from where we live. And you called me and you said, have you heard? And I was like, no, what? And I started crying (laughs) that Harry and Meghan were and I thought I thought that they had the kids so they did not but that's fine like still that's still incredible um I started crying on the phone to you and then of course she posted about it on our Instagram and I guess things must have gone well because the Telegraph is reporting that Harry and Meghan have been invited to stand on the balcony with her majesty at Trooping the Color in June and Harry later told Today Show the Today Show he had a wide-ranging interview with Hoda Kotb that he didn't know if he'd attend the Platinum Jubilee because of security concerns, but he is trying to get Archie to see the Queen again and Lily to meet her namesake, of course. So um, before we get into this, I want to take a moment to shout out Michelle Tauber from People Magazine. She's been a guest on the show. She is fantastic. She's People's Royals editor. She landed an interview with Prince Harry, which of course became the cover story, where among other things, he revealed that Lily took her first steps recently. It was it was a great article. If you haven't read it, go to people.com and check it out. So just wanted to say congratulations, Michelle, because that is a huge interview. Do you remember when we interviewed her and she was like, I have a huge interview and it ended up being with Fergie and that's huge, but this yep. is next level huge. So congratulations to Michelle on that. That's exciting. Yeah. Congratulations. So the Invictus Games, for those who may not know, were founded in 2014 by Harry, an international sports competition for wounded veterans and service members. Famously, Harry and Meghan publicly confirmed their relationship at the 2017 Invictus Games in Toronto, where Meghan was actually living at the time and filming Suits. Um, she also joined him for the 2018 Games in Sydney, Australia, 
which was not long after the Sussexes announced she was pregnant with her first child. So this is the first Invictus Games since 2018. Uh, the competition, I believe, was scheduled to be in The Hague in 2020 before the COVID-19 pandemic uh, was, you know, caused everything to be postponed. And so they brought it back this year in 2022. Yes, they finally got to have it. And of course, you mentioned on our last episode that the 2023 games will be in Dusseldorf and we'll announce in just a second where the 2025 games will be because that just came out. So the games kicked off on, or actually the competition kicked off the next day, but the Invictus Games opening ceremonies were April 15th, which was a Friday. There was a welcome reception. Megan wore an all white suit that kind of reminded me of the all white outfit Kate wore a couple of weeks ago in Jamaica. And then later that evening, that Friday, uh, the Duke and Duchess attended a second reception, this time for dignitaries hosted by the city of The Hague and the Dutch Ministry of Defense. So the next day, which was Saturday, the couple watched the Jaguar Land Rover driving challenge with Prince Harry even taking a turn at a driving obstacle course. And then they rode in mini kitty cars as young drivers took a spin around a course. That was adorable. And then (laughs) that night, Saturday night, it was the Invictus Games official opening ceremony. And the couple showed up hand in hand and beaming on the yellow carpet. So much romance just oozing from every corner. Megan shared a few words before Harry spoke, saying how grateful they were to the Netherlands for hosting the games and that, quote, my husband and I both recognize it's been a lot to get here, both physically and emotionally, not least of which for the Ukraine team whom we are all standing with. One thing I know for sure is that every single moment it has taken to get here will be worth it because it is here at the Invictus Games that we honor your years of active duty on the field and your continued service to your country, to your family and your community off the field. In his speech, Harry referenced Archie, and even though Archie and Lily didn't seem to be traveling with the couple on their trip, Harry spoke of his son, proving they are never far from his mind. When I talk to my son Archie about what he wants to be when he grows up, some days it's an astronaut, other days it's a pilot, a helicopter pilot, obviously, or quasi from Octonauts. But what I remind him is that no matter what you want to be when you grow up, it's your character that matters most, and nothing would make his mom and me prouder than to see him have the character of what we see before us, you. And then on Easter Sunday, Harry and Meghan watched more competition, and when interviewed by kid journalists and asked what he wished for Archie and Lily's futures, Harry poignantly said, to grow up in a better world, to grow up in a fairer world, a safer world, a more equal world. It's not going to be easy, but I will never, ever, ever rest until I as a parent have at least tried to make the world a better place for them because it is our responsibility that the world is the way that it is now. I don't think we should be bringing children into the world unless we are going to make that commitment to make it better for them. And then he added, we cannot steal your future. And then during the games, interestingly, although not totally surprisingly, Harry met a mom whose son's name was Harrison. I think Harrison was there too. And Harry revealed that Archie's name was almost Harrison but made the cut instead as his middle name. So I want to hear 
your thoughts on Megan's looks throughout the games. And by the way, I believe Megan flew out to go back home to California on Monday. And then the competition wrapped up a week after it started on Friday. So um, if you want to hear my thoughts on Megan's fashion throughout the week, I'm going to, I never do shameless plugs here, but I'm going to do two. So I'm always, I'm a writer and I'm always interviewing royal experts. I still would never call myself a royal expert, but Glamour reached out to me and asked me to be the expert alongside Elizabeth Holmes. And if you want to hear my thoughts, you can check uh, them out at Glamour this week. We will link the article in the show notes. And again, I'm not really one to talk about my writing on here, but if you didn't know, I am the weekend editor at Marie Claire, huge honor. And I had an exclusive interview with Tina Brown about her book released today, The Palace Papers. And that came out today. So we'll link that in the show notes as well. But I want to talk about Megan's fashion because there were seven looks a whole lot of white a whole lot of denim and I want to know what you think yeah she did have quite a few looks so as far as the outfits go I mean I think my favorite was the white Valentino suit Mm -hmm. I think Megan looks good in white and cream colors and the crisp power suit really fits her style um I think the least favorite was the Celine blazer and the baggy jeans and flats um I don't think that look was off brand for her it just wasn't something that I would personally gravitate toward for myself and I think she has other styles that are probably more appealing than that look in my opinion um you know it sort of seemed like it couldn't really decide if it wanted to be professional or casual Mm -hmm. um and I just I, you know, I really didn't think it looked that comfortable. Um, So that was, I think that was my least favorite, but loved the Valentino suit. Yes. Okay. So for my favorites, I would say my number one favorite would probably be the Brandon Maxwell white coat with the darker blue. I just, I don't know if we even call that darker blue, just like that. I love that color of blue denim. And then she wore with that, her Manila Blahnik uh, BB pumps that she's worn before And I love that look. It was very reminiscent of her 2017 Invictus Games look with the white and the denim and then the tan shoe. And then I also loved at the opening ceremony, she wore this Kate, I think is how you say that designer's name, this Kate top and the black trousers. And that look, and you you can read the glamour piece for more on this. Elizabeth Holmes goes into this really well in that piece, but that was a very clear nod to Princess Diana and something that she had worn in 1997, a few months before her death in August of that year. So those mm. were my two favorites. I agree with you about the Celine look. That one did not do it for me. Um, I did not like the jeans. Um, the coat was okay. I, I much preferred the other looks. Um, loved that Valentino power suit. What else? Um, there was a camel look that didn't get a lot of press. Um, and then that there was a Valentino dress, the very last look that I liked mm-hmm. with brown suede shoes. I mean, overall, it just, it, it fit Megan's aesthetic perfectly. And, but the standout looks for me were the Brandon Maxwell white coat and denim, and then the Kate blouse and black trousers. So, um, It was overall, I mean, look, as the editor of What Megan Wore, it is so much fun to have 
Megan out front in public because we will go the last time we had a weekend like that was in September. So we'll go like six <laughs> months at a stretch without having much to, to, to show, you know? And so it was that, that weekend was also Easter weekend. So it was just a crazy busy weekend, but it was, it was so much fun. It felt like old times again. Well, I am curious to know um, if you have any other thoughts on the, uh, you know, the event, whether it be the Invictus Games or the meeting with Her Majesty or Prince Harry's interview with Hoda. Um, anything else that you? Oh want my to gosh! I mean, yeah, I could take up the whole podcast with my thoughts. First of all, it's. It, Harry is really on a press junket right now. He was on today. Michelle interviewed him for People. I just listened to him a few moments ago on Masters of Scale podcast. He is everywhere. He is out there. And and I love it. I mean, of course, the Invictus Games has the best mission, celebrating and supporting veterans. And I thought it was it was great. We haven't had an Invictus Games in four years. And so um, I'm really glad that Megan got to come. I know Harry was on the record in the press as saying that it meant everything that she was there. So I loved that she came. I, of course, wish the kids were there, but I'm sure that they were deemed too young. That's a long trip for, for a 10-month-old and a almost three-year-old and um I mean gosh where do I even start the the today show interview I listened to it in totality there's so much there um it's it's wild how much Harry revealed about um how the queen can open up to him more than she can anyone else that he wants to make sure she's protected um Hoda is an amazing interviewer like she has goals all day long and um, is able to get nuggets out of her interview subjects that no one else can. And it was, it, I really encourage our listeners to take, I think it's about 12 minutes long and listen to the whole interview. I found it on YouTube. Um, was very emotionally touched by the fact that Harry and Meghan went to see the queen. Um, just, it's just, there's just so much there, but I mean, overall it was, it was a really successful weekend and really weak for the Sussexes. And do you have any final thoughts on it? Uh, well, you know, I, I said earlier, I, I do like this event. I really do wish that they wouldn't have done it on Easter weekend. Yeah, I you agree know, with that. That felt a little, that felt a little off, but for me, you can look at the calendar years in advance and know, you know, when Easter's going to fall and that's a major holiday for Christians. And I really don't like the idea of asking people to choose, you know, whether they're going to attend religious services or, uh, you know, Invictus games and especially for participants and those working the event, you know, they, they potentially had to miss a, a really important day, um, you know, if they celebrate Easter. And for the general public, you know, you may be able to watch some of it later, but, um, but it, you know, some people didn't have that opportunity. And so um, that would be a, a criticism that I would have of that event. Mm -hmm. um, regarding the interview with Hoda, you know, I'm, I won't get and break down every detail of what was said. You can go listen. Um, to the interview yourself, but I did think this before, way before, I think I've heard others kind of say it in, in royal reporting, but um, I kind of thought all along that Princess Eugenie was probably the one who nudged Harry to go visit Her Majesty, I imagine. I heard that too. You know, maybe they discussed it when she was visiting in California or shortly after. I sort of feel like she may have uh, played a role in that and, um, you know, <sighs> him doing the interview, I, I will say this, I feel like given 
family relations following the Oprah interview. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like it would have been great if he had drawn up some some clear lines ahead of the interview and and discussed, you know, what would be off the table. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it would have been a lot better if if it had just been the Invictus games that were talked about in the interview and kept the spotlight on that because, you know, I feel like trust with the family right now is, is a little fragile and, you yeah. know, it, it feels like how, how do they have these sort of private conversations if there is a national interview that follows every family meeting? Hmm. And I wonder, you know, I don't know if, the, did the family know that the interview was coming up? I'm really not sure. Um, but um, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I'm glad that he's out there. I don't think anyone is telling him not to do interviews. If he wants to get out there and, and bring publicity to the work that he's doing, I think that's really great. Um, I just don't know that that was the right um, place to talk about family stuff mm-hmm. of, of any kind, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. I hear you on all of your points that that was that was just my observation um but overall yeah I mean I you know I like the event and um we'll we'll continue to look forward to future events so next year's Invictus Games will be in Dusseldorf Germany and it was just announced that the 2025 games will be held in Vancouver and Whistler Canada um the first time the games have returned to a country so they were in Toronto in 2017 and Vancouver, if you'll remember, is where Harry, Megan, and Archie moved in early 2020, pre-settling down in California. So it's a really special place for them. Ooh, what a whirlwind, right? I mean, that was that was like that was the Invictus Games were kind of like a royal tour with like, you know, and it's just like they except instead of going from place to place, it was just, you know, all in one spot and I like you I really support the mission of the games and I'm excited for Dusseldorf next year I can't remember exactly when in 2023 it is but it'll be here before we know it so with that let's move into speaking of Easter let's move into topic two which is Prince George and Princess Charlotte made their royal Easter debut so on Easter Sunday which was April 17. Yes. Um, I had to think about that. Prince George, it's been so long ago, Prince George and Princess Charlotte made their Royal Easter debut, which is the first time they have joined the Royal family at the Easter Sunday church service at St. George's Chapel in Windsor Castle. And as we mentioned at the top of the episode, the Cambridges were a united front in blue with Kate in head to toe blue from her dress to her headpiece to her shoes. Charlotte also wore a blue floral dress and navy cardigan to the service while William and George both wore a suit and tie. And George even got to practice his royal handshake while meeting one of the clergymen after the service. And eagle-eyed Charlotte fashion watchers noticed her outfit on Easter Sunday was a total throwback to the outfit she wore to meet little brother Louis in hospital in 2018, as Rachel mentioned earlier. Hey, when it works, it works. You know what I mean? (laughs) So um, noticeably absent from Easter service was the queen. We knew she wouldn't be there. She turned 96 that next Thursday, April 21st. It's the first time she's missed the event in over 50 years. I mean, I I think it goes without saying most royal followers know that 
her majesty is a devout Christian. And so she never misses this service. I can only imagine that the family went and visited her at Windsor after it was over. Prince Charles and Camilla, the Duchess of Cornwall, marked the holiday in Scotland as they traditionally do. But there were plenty of other royals on hand to take in the service with the Cambridges, including Prince Edward and wife Sophie, Countess of Wessex, and their children, Louise and James. Eugenie was there. Peter Phillips and his daughter, Savannah and Isla, I think that's how you say it, mm-hmm. um, Isla, were there. And then Zara Tyndall, who was there with husband Mike and their eldest daughter, Mia. And Prince Louis wasn't at the Easter Sunday service, but we made up for it with getting four new snaps of him from Mom K for his fourth birthday on April 23rd. So, so cute. And happy birthday, Prince Louis. Okay. These Cambridge kids, though, can we just <laughs> talk about them for a second? Well, I mean, these photos Kate puts out could be like magazine shots. Like, yeah, you see that in a catalog. Yeah, well, it doesn't help that the kid is so freaking cute, which I guess he didn't really have a chance, right? Because his parents are gorgeous. But um, like at the risk of sounding really creepy, and I promise you this is not how it is intended to be, George is going to be a heartbreaker someday. Charlotte is beautiful. And Louis is the most adorable child. And like the all, I mean, there's no way that listeners you haven't seen these four pictures but if you haven't please rectify that immediately he's on the beach he's so cute with a wide smile and I mean just the cutest thing ever and then so I I don't know if you saw this but my mom sent me a video of and this is probably it's been taken down so it's probably a controversial one it was probably obtained illegally but um of Louie bat like trying to get into the trunk of the car did you see this video (laughs) so I I didn't see the video but I did hear about it getting taken down yeah so we won't we won't park there and stay very long but I mean this kid has energy for days as most four-year-olds do and he is adorable so happy fourth birthday Prince Louis he starts school in September and he's just growing right on up so Moving into topic three, speaking of birthdays, the queen turned 96 on April 21st. She spent the occasion at San- at Sandringham, sorry, I can't speak, and uh, some photographers caught her off-duty look, loved it. She was riding in a car on the grounds of Sandringham, rocking a very bright pink lip, sunglasses, and stud earrings. So that is how you do 96, everybody. <laughs> Happy birthday, your majesty. Any thought? Any thoughts on that before we move on? Well, I love it. Um, yeah, I, there's some fashion inspo right now for your <laughs> summer. Break out that pink lip gloss and um, and sunglasses and um, do it up like the queen. Happy birthday. And put your stud earrings on and turn 96 like a boss. So, um, of course, we mentioned this in the show last episode, but it's birthday season. We'll cover, we got a lot of birthdays upcoming this next week. We've got Charlotte turning seven. We've got Archie turning three. So we'll talk about all of those in the next episode. But I believe our last topic of the day before we go into our really, really juicy interview with Robert Jobson is topic four, Edward and Sophie canceled a tour stop. So currently as we speak and they might be about to come home but Edward and Sophie are on their own Caribbean tour for the Platinum Jubilee and this tour is getting a whole lot less press attention but still 
it is uh, rather, it's not going that well. So um, Edward and Sophie continue this, this super strange Platinum Jubilee tour there in St. Lucia, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, in Antigua and Barbuda this week. One of their tour stops, Grenada, was abruptly taken off the schedule with no explanation given. So Buckingham Palace released a statement that said, in consultation with the government of Grenada and on the advice of the governor general, the Earl and Countess of Wessex's visit to Grenada has been postponed. The Earl and Countess hope to visit at a later date. So a lot of people are asking why. Speculation mounted that the Wessexes only planned to be in Grenada for a few hours in the country just didn't really feel it was worth it. Probably, you know, was a whole lot of money for security or that is a phrase I like to say a lot, the juice was not worth the squeeze, if you will, to spend taxpayer dollars on the visit. Of course, this follows on the heels of William and Kate's own Caribbean tour and all of the issues that brought up. And um, they were, in, Sophie and Edward gave, God, this the optics, I'm telling you, the gave, um, Gave, on a tour stop gave a photo of themselves um, and just the the look it's 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 messy out there right now so um just it's not getting as much press attention as William and Kate's but I was wondering if you had any thoughts on this yeah uh you know I, I feel like I'm still sort of gathering my thoughts it's like this situation where we're not really sure what's going to happen and we're just trying to take it all in before we form you know an opinion on on anything it's it's disappointing that you know on one hand it seems like we've got this you know big celebration for her majesty and it seems like it would be exciting and fun after two years of everyone kind of being on lockdown to to go out and and do these events and I mean I, I imagine if I lived in a country where the royals are coming to visit I would be really excited um you know but everybody has different perspectives on this and um we're seeing this trend right now of of they're being concerned about if if this is the right thing to be doing and I think people are voicing those concerns and so we're kind of just taking it all in and um trying to figure out I you know I guess they're trying to figure out the best way to handle this so um I, you know again it's kind of disappointing all the way around I um yeah. I, I don't really know I don't know how they'll handle this going forward or what the right thing is if they should continue um to go to, to places that are welcoming them for the visit or, you know, and again, we don't really know what's being said behind the scenes and what the conversations are really looking like. Um, but I, I am definitely still looking for uh, forward to all of the celebrations that will happen within the UK. Yeah, it's, it's this Platinum Jubilee tour has not gone. Um, as well as planned. Um, of course, William and Kate, Edward and Sophie are getting flack. Anne's visit was so largely under the radar. Um, of course, we, we announced last episode that Charles and Camilla will be going to Canada. Um, maybe that will be the saving grace of this tour because it has been really, really fraught with controversy. And, you know, some might say rightfully so, but um, we'll, we'll have, uh, It'll the tour will be finished by the time we have our next episode. So we'll see if we have any thoughts then. But any last, we don't have any royals around the world this week. So any last thoughts before we hop into our interview with Robert Jobson? Um, I don't think so. Uh, this is a great interview. I really think listeners will enjoy it. 
Yes, and without further ado, we will introduce him in the interview. Take a listen to our conversation with Robert Jobson. If you follow the Royals at all, you know Robert Jobson. Actually, his book just prior to the one we're talking about today, Prince Philip Century, 1921 to 2021, The Extraordinary Life of the Duke of Edinburgh, was one of our podcast royal book club picks last year. And now he's here to talk about his new book, William at 40, The Making of a Modern Monarch, which is out May 3rd, just in time for William's upcoming milestone birthday on June 21st. We had a 40th birthday party for Kate with Beth and Holt back in January. Now it's time to celebrate William's 40th, albeit a bit early. But before we get into it, I want to point out that I find this so fascinating. Robert co-authored the 2002 book, Diana Closely Guarded Secret with Princess Diana's personal protection officer, Ken Worf. They collaborated again on Guarding Diana, which came out in 2017. He's also written the book, Charles at 70, Thoughts, Hopes, and Dreams, and is known in these circles as the godfather of royal reporting, having reported on the British royal family since 1991. It's an honor to have you here. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be on your show. You write that William is a kind man intent on doing good in the world, not just for humans, but for animals too. But you write in private, however, William can be a sensitive and difficult character with a short fuse and fiery temper that can blow up because of frustration at any time, particularly when it comes to issues regarding his family. So we all know the William, the public man. Uh, Can you tell us more about William in private? Well, I think, I mean, I wouldn't like to overstate that, but what I'm saying is that, you know, anybody that is in a public position, and William very much is, is very, guards his privacy, jealousy, and, and, and I think that, you know, on a couple of incidents where photographers have overstepped the mark, and or he regards that they have, he has blown up. I mean, I know there was an incident at Sandringham where he was out on his bike with his children, and... Um, and he wasn't very happy about the fact that there was a photographer there. The photographer actually didn't have his camera up or anything like that. But the fact was, he was, you know, he wanted to defend his private time. And you can understand that. And um, although I wouldn't, you know, some people have said to me online, oh, you know, is, is this an attacking book? Far from it. It's a very positive book about Prince William. It's a book about someone who I have known for since I he was a little boy and I've watched him grow. And I think he's developed into a, a great you know, a fine man. So I, it's not in any way an attack, but I do think there's also always a private side to someone and he can be uh, volatile. I think Kate, Catherine is a very calming influence on him. You know, he can not necessarily be deferential going up towards his, um, you know, his father. I know they sometimes have had you know, disagreements. Like in all families, you've got to remember that this is a family and there will be ups and downs in the family. But in private, I think, you know, he can be quite difficult um, sometimes of short fuse and staff, but you know I do think this is, comes with the territory. I think that when you a lot is expected of you, sometimes you can, um, you know, you, you can't always act perfectly all the time. Mm. Well, we can't overstate how much we enjoyed this book. It's it's such a good time capsule of him at this stage in his life. So you write that you set out to write this book to discover what sort of king he will be one day and what path William will lead the monarchy along. So after now completing this book, what are your answers to those questions? What type of king will he be and how will a monarchy under William look? 
Well, I think that at this moment in time, we've got a monarchy that's clearly in transition. The Queen at nearly 96 is um, clearly coming to the end of, it's the twilight of her her reign. Um, she may be around a few more years, but certainly there's the Prince Charles is taking over the reins of the, of the monarchy, as if you like, as a CEO rather than as chairman, yeah. uh, and, until he becomes the, um, the the king. And we don't know how, I mean, he's nearly 74. For we don't know how long he'll he'll be around. So I do think that we're on a cusp of something for William. It may be ten years, but ten years is not that long in in, in you know in, in time. And I think that William is is clearly thinking about the way that he wants to go about his business. And I think he'll be certainly, uh, though he respects tradition, he'll be less formal um, in his approach. I think he'll focus on bigger issues in terms of I'm not so sure that he'll want to do so many engagements that may get lead to criticism of him saying of his work show or whatever but I think he'll focus on more impactful um, events so that and I think he'll use what's available to him as well much more television as we've seen the Queen using Zoom quite regularly now which is quite mm-hmm. something I think you'll see him more on television I think he'll do more like the Earthshot Prize in terms of the way that he established that. Now, that that's a lot of work that's gone into the Earthshot Prize. And I think that, mm-hmm. you know, that's a long-term plan over 10 years. That's the sort of thing I think he'll get into. What I think that William offers, where maybe the Prince of Wales doesn't, um, and I have a lot of respect for the Prince of Wales, is, is hope. I think he's looking for solutions and trying to inspire the younger people to come up with those solutions rather than... Almost scare people into changing their attitude towards the planet. I think he says, "Look, we are a very um, adaptable race um, of people, and uh, as, so, you know, as as over the many many years of the, of humanity, um, that we might be able to do something to help save the planet and to transform the planet." So I think he's more. He, he tries to find solutions. And I think he's more of a. He offers hope. I think, which is important how will he do things differently i think he'll be more casual i don't think he'll be as formal um you even see that when we're on the visits i recently did to the caribbean although that was i think media got that out of control because i was out of perspective because i was on that trip and they were very well respected and very well greeted there was an agenda going on behind the scenes i think that was not necessarily fair um in the caribbean but um no i think that, that he will be somebody that is is looking to do as I say, the Cambridge way to do it his way, which will be, mm-hmm. which will be more um, bigger events, less events, but bigger, more impactful events. And I think he will use all the media available to him, and that's online to, um, you know, to all the all the tools that are available now that haven't really been utilised by the monarchy um, at the moment. I find it really interesting that you were actually the first person to interview William way back in 1995 in Switzerland. You were also with William and Catherine aboard their flight in 2019 in Pakistan that got caught in the middle of the electric storm. And you detail this in the book, but can you take us back on that plane ride and what it was like being in the inside? Well, I've just been on the plane to, on the last one to the Caribbean. And again, they came back and were very jolly and chatty with us and very positive, but on that particular one, it was quite a quite an experience. I've flown around the world for for forty years or so, and we were in the middle of a 
We were flying back to Islamabad, actually, from Lahore, and we were caught in this terrible electric storm, and it really was something else. And I suppose we were, what, we were on what is the version of Air Force One. Um, and so a lot in that respect, a lot of the equipment is not necessarily put away properly. It is slightly different. People are working and doing things. But in there, all of a sudden, we dropped a, a hell of a long way in the middle of the, in the storm. And... Um, yeah, it was quite something. I mean, I and we were. I was looked out. I could see the, the lightning crashing against the the plane, and I think there were like golf ball size, um, or bigger actually. Um, um, not uh, you know, um, sort of very hard. Uh, what's it? I'm trying to think of the word actually. Um, hailstones, hailstones, and they were pretty firm stuff, whacking away. And all of a sudden, it dropped, and we were jumped up in our seats, and it was quite a roller coaster. Literally, was a a roller coaster ride. Um, the, the pilot tried a couple of times to get into the military airport, but couldn't. Um, and we went back to Lahore, I think. It was. Yeah, we went back to a, a place where he made sure that we got um, you know, hotels, etc. It was very, very accommodating. But he did come back and have a, a joke or two about you know he was he was flying the plane and trying to sort of <laughs> calm everyone down. But he, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a nice guy like that. I think he was quite concerned, wanted to make sure everyone was okay um, because, you know, there were some nervous flyers on those, those events. But it was, uh, yeah. uh, was, a bit of a rock, was a bit of a roller coaster ride. And um, yeah, and, made, made, <laughs> and when we landed, of course, we couldn't say we were, where we were because, publicly because of the security implications because it was a change to the eye itinerary um and um so but it was it was interesting it made it more fun i think made us all part of one group <laughs> it was fun but before that it was terrifying and i remember watching that video and i was i was terrified watching the video being <laughs> on the plane so i i'm so glad everybody walked out of that completely oh yeah power to the pilots i know oh, william jones pilots, was piloting they, yeah. the plane yeah the pilots were great but i think that um i think there's three on those royal flights but what was great about it, I think, was that um, no one was whacked by, you know, a TV tripod or something like that. Cause that <laughs> yeah. That that you quite bad, about you know. that. Wow. Yeah. Well, you write at 40, William may well be the man who appears to have everything. A devoted and beautiful wife, three healthy children, personal wealth, two amazing homes in London, the vast apartment 1A Kensington Palace, and a country home, Anmer Hall in Sandringham, Norfolk, and global respect and growing recognition on the world stage. He accepts he's a lucky man, but we see him at a crossroads too. He seems a man in a hurry. Can you explain to us what you mean by that? Well, I think really that we're seeing a lot of this with his Earthshot program, that he seems to have realised that if, like his mother and his father before him, that really this position comes with a lot of responsibility. And that responsibility, I think he's realised with his grandfather, the Duke of Edinburgh as well, that, you know, saving the planet, making sure that you, know, you can't get involved in too many political issues, but saving the planet and making sure that we wake up to the issues that are in front of us. It's hugely important to him. And I think it started with, uh, with a love of Africa, with a love of um, saving, uh, which really came from his grandfather, saving um, rare animals that are uh, you know, close to extinction. And um, I think in that respect, he's been brilliant with his work with Tusk and other charities, where he's really trying to make a difference and make a difference on the ground as well. And combining that with, with humanity and trying to say, look, 
why are we doing this to ourselves? You know, we have a duty to our children and our grandchildren to make sure that we leave this planet, if not in a better condition than when we 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 arrive, than on a, than actually to at least be on the same chance of it surviving longer. So, I think that, that in that respect, he is a man in a hurry. He's not in a hurry to be king. I think that's very important to stress. I think that you know he's tight. He's been very clever in the way that and um, got permission with the Queen and the two Prince of Wales to sort of have that family time and chance to develop his relationship properly with Catherine and and his children because he knows this isn't a job you know that will end at retirement age. You know he's got this job for life. So yeah. he, so I think it's important that when he does become the King. Um, which you know could happen. It could happen tomorrow. You know, it could happen within a week. You know, we, the, the fate of what happens to the Prince of Wales or the Queen is not really in anybody else but God's hands. So the fact is, you know, he has to be fully prepared, and he is. Um, and I think that I've noticed in the last, well, you know, the last two or three years, particularly since that trip to Pakistan, that he's taking his responsibility very seriously, which I think was quite upsetting when it came when William was sort of. It was suggested by Harry that William was trapped in his role. He certainly doesn't feel trapped in his role. He sees it as an opportunity to um, achieve much more than maybe he could have done if he was just, um, you know, certainly more than he would have if he was just a, a general man in the streets. So I think he, he realises he's a privileged position and he realises he can do a lot of good with that privilege. Mm. Well, let's get back to William's childhood for a moment. So he was born in 1982, and he was actually the first British monarch to have been born in a hospital. Can you tell us what his childhood was like? Well, actually, it was a very fun childhood. And I think that Diana, though the child's from Diana, it's always been seen. It's, we all have 2020 vision with hindsight. But the fact is, in the first period of their marriage, um, and with Willie the Wombat, as he was called, they, they were fairly happy. I mean, they had a, a long trip to Australia where the, Diana insisted on taking him with them. Um, you know, he would spend his time in a, with the nanny and um, Chef Mervyn Witcherly and and the the, the, the the butler, Michael Fawcett, who was brought in on a, on a farmstead. Uh, but they would keep returning back to him, you know, after carrying out engagements. And I think that... It, they had a very good time. And I don't think that, I know we all look at the crown and believe fact. I mean, it is simply not most of the time. They were very happy in those first um, couple of years. And I don't, I don't think that um, um, in any way impacted later on, even when their marriage did start to fall apart, that, that Williams ha had a very happy childhood. I mean, you know, he had a, my friend Ken Wolfe, who I've written those two books, as you mentioned, with Closely Guarded Secret and, and uh, Guarding Diana. And, you know, he, he acted as a very important role, a vuncular role to the boys and would take off with William when they were in trips to the Caribbean, you know, in the jungle and in the, in the rainforest and just go disappearing, go snorkeling, go scuba diving. And so he, they had some great fun. Diana was very, found it very important um, that they wouldn't just have a royal upbringing, you know, shooting and fishing on royal estates. That She wanted them to go to Disney World. She wanted them to go to all of these places, um, to go to McDonald's and, you know, to go and, and just live a little bit like normal kids. So therefore, he was, you know, his father too, I think, wanted this, you know, make sure they got the right schools for him, which they did. And I think that he was able to mix with kids of his own age and have a fairly normal back, 
uh, upbringing. Um, you know, obviously his younger brother, um, they were put together a lot and I think they had a, a good fun time together. Um, and you know, they were they were happy times actually, even though the marriage was in crisis um, and in his early, you know, from 10, 11, it was very difficult for him perhaps, but certainly up to sort of eight, nine, it was a very happy times. They would go skiing, enjoy times, um, very enjoyable holidays on Virgin mm -hmm. Order. We, I mean, I cover a lot of that in the book because I think it just shows you um, how much fun they had. In fact, William recently on his trip to the Bahamas mentioned his, snooking, his yeah. um, uh, snorkeling and how much he loved being in the Bahamas when when he was um, a, a young boy. So, you know, obviously had a good, yeah, obviously had good memories of it. Well, then in 1991, William was accidentally struck in the head with a golf club while at school. William's mother, Diana, stayed by his side, never left. But Charles, he took off on the royal train to an engagement. This made headlines. I even barely remember. I was really young at the time, but I remember these headlines. And you write, she never, she meaning Diana, never forgave her husband for what she saw as his gross insensitivity that night. So what effect did this situation have on Charles and Diana's already strained marriage? Well, it was very strained. I mean, I, the, the point was, is that that night, um, that's where that afternoon, um, William's body, then bodyguard, Reg Spinney, made a very important decision. Um, where the, I think the, the school were, so I'm not trying to cover it up, but they didn't want to make a big fuss out of it with another boy involved. But he insisted on taking the uh, driving um, William to hospital for the local hospital, which he did. He just put him in, and they got him to the hospital. Um, and he bleeped Ken Wolf, who then told Diana, who raced to the hospital. Charles did exactly the same. He drove there in his Aston Martin. He was there, with, you know, very very quickly but of course the relationship was very strained at that time and when they eventually transferred William to um, the, the specialist hospital um, in London um, and then he had to be treated for a, a, a depressed fractured skull mm -hmm. um, the doctors were saying there's no point in both of you being here you know there's no point there's no... and and Charles had a, um, a number of engagements didn't want to, didn't want to let other people down was told by the doctors there was nothing to worry about Diana wanted to stay by her son's bedside. There was only really room for, for one to do that. And so he made that decision. So I personally don't think I would have done that. But I mean, you know, it's difficult, isn't it? We're not, we're not the Prince of Wales. But at the same time, it was a decision that was taken. And um, yeah, I think it had lasting damage on, on, on their relationship. But then again, in all honesty, I think that uh, without being too cynical, the princess made great hay about it, i.e. showing that Charles was a poor father and she was a good mother, etc. Um, I don't think that was necessarily, of course, what she was trying to do, but she said it certainly came out that day, way with the newspapers saying, what sort of father are you, appalling person, and really slammed Charles. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think they were probably a little unfair. The doctor had advised him it was safe to go, and um, that's what he did. Well, Charles and Diana ultimately separated in 1992, and you write in the book that William asked his mother why she and Charles were splitting up. What did she say, and how did William take the news of the separation? Well, they tried to play things down. I can't be specific of what they actually said, 
um, to each other and obviously went to see him. But you've got to remember that things were being aired very publicly at that time. And she was having an affair. He was having an affair. Um, very difficult times to explain to a young boy what was going on. But she said that they're both mummy and daddy still love you. Uh, but we can't live together, basically. And um, that's how it was described. But of course, then, of course, things came out subsequently, such as how she said she loved and adored James Hewitt, who had been seen as an avuncular figure by William and Harry, um, who taught them to ride and had been a regular visitor at Highgrove, which must have been a bit of a shock to them. They would not necessarily have known that their mother was having an adulterous affair. Um, and of course, Charles had said on television that he, you know, was involved with Camilla Parker Bowles. And the marriage had irretrievably broken down and there was nothing that they could do. So I think that it was all being paid out in in public a lot. And I think that was the difficulty for William because a boy at school, when you're that age, if everything's coming out in the newspapers, although the big boys at Ludgrove and Eton were quite... Um, nice to them you know they were they, i think the teachers particularly trying to come, protect them there will always be, will be always be a few that will take the mickey and will you know mock you and that's excruciating really isn't it for a schoolboy the last yeah. thing you want to hear about is your parents love lives being played out in the newspapers which unfortunately for william it was it was harry was probably more protected they wouldn't have the newspapers at the school he was at. And most of the time, people didn't really, you know, they didn't really, it wasn't online. There weren't kids on the mobile phones like there are now. It, it, there was no real online content. So if it wasn't in the newspapers, the newspapers were hidden away, then no one really knew a lot about it. Well, it has long been reported that William was perhaps too close to his mother. And you say he was... Diana's emotional crutch during her tormented marriage and that sometimes even Diana admitted that she went too far and burdened William with problems he never should have been asked to carry at such a tender age. Can I think that's right. Yeah. I yeah. Think that is right. yeah. Can you explain that mother-son dynamic between Diana and William? Well, I think Diana, because William was so tall and acted in a mature way, I think Diana probably thought he was older than his years and you know, she didn't really have that many people to talk to. She began to isolate herself. She couldn't really express, I mean, maybe to her protection officer, maybe to, you know, her butler, Paul Barrow or someone, but you know, she did tend to isolate herself. And therefore, with William was there when he was there and he, she could unburden herself. But of course, you know, you've got to remember that, you know, he loved his mother, but he loved his father too, as much. And right. there, was, there came a moment, I think, where he felt that he, you know, he took his own judgment and felt that she was being unfair to his father. So, and in fact, on occasion, didn't speak to his mother for like months, you know, weeks and weeks on end. So although she was his emotional crutch and he would put letters under the door when she was crying in the bathroom, you know, that he loved her, um, I think it must have been very difficult for him, actually, um, because he couldn't unburden himself really to anybody else. And that's probably a little unfair. And I think Diana acknowledged that as well that she perhaps was wrong to do that but um, you know when you're in an emotional state um, it's difficult but that's perhaps why he's so focused on mental health issues mm. today because I mean I, I think he understands how just how difficult things are you know for people no matter how 
rich and famous or or you know you might have all the great things in the world but financially be stable etc but that doesn't stop um depression it doesn't stop um those sense of you know deep sadness that one experiences in that in one's life so i think that he's been, it probably made him a more intuitive and emotionally um rounded person actually in the end but um, it would have been quite difficult for him i think when he was a young boy approaching his teens obviously his mother's death in 1997 was the worst moment um of william's life but you write that William, after being told of Diana's death by Charles while staying at Balmoral, immediately thought of his younger brother who was still asleep in the bedroom next door. The task of telling Harry was one that Charles and William decided to undertake together. So flash forward to the present. Do you see hope for an eventual reconciliation between the brothers? Yes, I do. I hope so. I think it's, I think brothers are very, sibling, particularly brother relationships can be, you know, testosterone can get in the way. I think that there's 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 issues of protecting their own wives and the fallout between their wives as well. But I believe that their relationship goes back such a long way. They've had so many shared experiences that I'm sure at this moment in time, both both of them are missing their brothers, um, their brother immensely. I'm sure that they will be wishing things had gone differently. Um, some of the things that Harry has said and making them said have simply been not fair or not or true. And I think that that's deeply, deeply hurt William. Equally, I think maybe being the oldest son and the one that's going to become the king, you can be a little bit um, maybe too brash or too, too um, and not realise it when dealing with issues. Clearly, Meghan felt that William... Uh, didn't show her the warmth that she was hoping but you know it's difficult isn't it he he would have only really at that stage been looking out for his brother he probably was worried that the relationship was going too quickly and um and was just looking out for him but i think there's been a lot of oversensitivity involved here but my belief is that i think that the, the relationship between william and harry is is so long and so um have so many shared experiences that at some stage in the future they will there will be a rapprochement i don't think they'll ever be close like they have been um and that's a shame but i do believe that harry will be at the coronation of his brother i do believe that his brother will invite him and i do believe that hopefully that they will be able to at least have a um uh, some sort of love. Oh, no, the love is always there, but some sort of relationship. Right. Well, that makes me very happy to hear. So I want to talk about Kate for a moment. So the then Kate Middleton, now Duchess of Cambridge, has been a part of William's life for over 20 years now, which is hard to believe. So she's been in his life for half of his life. How does she make him a better man? Oh, in so many ways. I mean, you can see the love between them when you when you watch them close up when you're on a on a job or on a, a foreign trip. She, they laugh together. He makes her laugh. She makes him laugh. She's somebody who, I believe, calms him down when his volatility is high. You know, they've had their moments. She'll stand up for herself. She's not some sort of shrinking violent. I mean, in the past when they were going out, and he, she, you know. Someone said the car would shake when they were both having a, a row together. So she could give as good as she's got, but she's a truly um, 
they, they, you know, I think that really they spit up one or two times, two or three times, and in that time learnt a lot about themselves before before committing totally to to marriage. So I think that it's it's, it's a success story because William and Kate love each other, but more importantly, they understand what is required from each other publicly as well, which is such a hard thing. Something I don't think Megan was given time to appreciate, really. I think it was such a whirlwind romance that she didn't really get the chance to really appreciate what would be expected of her. Um, and maybe misinterpreted some of the Englishness, as I would call it, or Britishness about the way she was perceived. So that's a shame because I think they had a lot to offer, a real lot to offer, particularly the Commonwealth and, and also and she, they misunderstood the media. I think Harry was completely overprotective and too overprotective. But I think that Catherine in time, if they'd been friends or longer, they would have probably been a better, a better um, a chance for things to move forward. But unfortunately, I don't think they were particularly, they particularly got on, you know, because Megan and Catherine are from different worlds, you know, and I think mm -hmm. Catherine offers, Catherine understands the monarchical system. She understands what is expected of her. She's picture perfect. She does what she's expected of her. But she's becoming more confident as she gets now. She's 40. And I think that helps William too, because he's going to have to um, play, they're going to have to play this public role um, continually now for the rest of their lives. And I think that you've got to have someone like the Queen did with the Duke of Edinburgh. And like Charles does now with Camilla, who you can kick your shoes off at night and just have a laugh about what went on or if there was a funny moment or a you know, an odd person that you met during the day. At least you can just, you know, kick off your shoes and have a laugh about it. And I think that's very important. To do it on your own, I think, would be very, very difficult. And I think Harry had to do it on his own for quite some time, you know, into his 30s, then found Megan and, and seemed to be... I think she didn't quite understand what was expected of her, really. And I think that that would have taken time and they neither of them gave it time, which is a shame. It's just a shame. And I think that both William and Kate could have probably helped a little more, actually, in, in that respect. Well, you speak of the infamous rumored Rose Hanbury affair in the book, claiming that it's nonsense. We would love for you to officially set the record straight on that here. Well, we live in the 21st century, you know, where, where everything is seen on mobile phones. Oh, I don't know what happened there. Uh, lovely music, but I don't know what happened now. <laughs> lovely piece of music. I don't know if that was the heavens telling me that I've got it right, but um, <laughs> but the um, we live in the 21st century. Everything is available on mobile phones, and rumours are just spouted around online, but don't make the mainstream media because you do have to have evidence to get this. There will be evidence. There will be there will be rumours that will be far more wide about that, and I don't believe. I believe that there may have been a flirtation that, um, that the, and I think that Kate probably wasn't very happy about it because they were part of that circle. And, and, um, and I think that probably that would, that's as far as it went. You know, there may have been something said at a dinner party that was inappropriate or something like that. But I don't believe that in any way there's been an affair, no, not at all. And I think that that was really an online story. It was a story that was going around the papers and just because it goes around the papers without it appearing doesn't mean it's true so 
And also, you know, you would know, you, you know, people with contacts would know. And, you know, if you're having an affair, you've got to have an affair. You've got to be, you know, in a, in a, in a house leaving at the same time or the other person's not there. All these sort of things, I, I would think, you know, almost impossible in this day and age. Well, you heard it here. It's nonsense, everybody, and it's not. It's sad, really, that it was being put around because, you know, they have, you only have to look at the way Kate looks at her husband and um, right. there's absolutely no way that a wife would look at a husband who she's been with for 20 years, 10 years of marriage, if he'd had an affair. She just wouldn't look at him like that, I assure you. There'd I be agree. An, there'd be a th something in the, her eyes, doubt. I agree. There's, nothing, I agree. There's, no there's no doubt in her eyes. I agree. But also, I would, if I was William, I'd be very careful because I think Carol Middleton might actually sort of, you know, that be would would tear him apart. <laughs> after, <laughs> yeah, after I wouldn't three, want to go after three Middleton. after three children. I think that you know it'd be the no. I mean, you know, you, we saw them walk in for the Duke of Edinburgh's service, and that 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 he realizes more than anybody that his marriage is hugely important in terms of not only for him and his wife, but for the future of the monarchy. Um, and there's no way that we can have any other repeat of the nineties. Um, when all these marriages fell apart and the, the royal family became a, you know, not so much as a, a Game of Thrones, but this awful soap opera about infidelity. Mm -hmm. Well, our last question for you, and thank you so much for being here today, is we are on the precipice of William's 40th birthday. What do the next 40 years look like for William? Well, I think this, we're coming to a stage. Well, when he got off the plane, I think when I saw him in Jamaica, there's going to... Um, and he and, and Belize and Bahamas. He very much looked like a uh, a young king. He was dressed slightly trendy, more trendy than say his father and um, and, and royals from the past. Nice light blue suit he was wearing. I I just think he is somebody who's going to be in the majority of that time a monarch. Excuse me, a monarch. He's going to have to sort of embrace change in the monarchy. We're going to see. Um, possibly um, the, a lot of realms, there's 14, 15 left that will um, go. They will no longer be have him as king, but that's okay. A lot, I think a lot of the, the, the Caribbean and the, the West Indies will no longer have William as king or, or Charles as king, like Barbados has got rid of them. But they will stay in the Republic, they will stay in the Commonwealth, um, of which Charles will be the next head of the Commonwealth. I believe that William will be the next. What came of the Commonwealth after him as well? Um, I think that it, there's going to they'll keep that continuity. The, the, the fifty-four nations. So we'll see less realms. I'm not sure that you know he may well not be king of Australia, but I actually think that the chances are that Canada will keep them as monarchy, and he'll be the king of Canada. He'll probably be the king of Australia and king of New Zealand. I think some of the smaller countries will go, particularly in the Caribbean, but. Um, He's very popular with his wife and children. And I think that he, the, the future for the monarchy with him looks sound and looks positive because I think he's, he's, he's well-respected. He's somebody who listens to what's going on around him. He wants to make a difference. He wants to um, raise the bar in terms of contributions um, from the monarchy. And I think he'll speak out on issues that he, believe, he really cares about. I don't think he'll be silent like the Queen. I think if he's got something to say and it's and it's constitutional for him to say it, he'll say it. 
Well, thank you so much for being here today, Robert. We really appreciate um, having this opportunity to talk with you. My pleasure. It's been great to chat. The book is great. I mean, the excerpts are starting to come out on the internet and on different sites, and it is absolutely worth your time to read this book. And I believe that the release date of the book has been changed actually to June 21st, which is William's actual 40th birthday. So stay abreast of that. Loved the interview with Robert. Thank you again, Robert, for being on the show. Yes, thank you again. And I think that's really cool that the book will be released on his 40th birthday. I know, right? Listeners, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Podcast Royal. Email us at hellopodcastroyal at gmail.com. And please follow, rate, and review our podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to episode 60, our Diamond Jubilee episode. Diamond Jubilee, Diamond Jubilee episode. We're not quite to platinum. Yes, our Diamond Jubilee episode. Did I say platinum? No, I did. Oh, (laughs) yes. Episode 60 of Podcast Royal. We will see you next week. Bye. Bye.